It's Wednesday, April 7th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. In an effort to help people social distance and businesses to stay afloat, many state and local governments across the country relax regulations over cocktails to go, telehealth and other medical services, even document notarization and marijuana sales. Now that the country is starting to open back up in earnest, many want to keep these changes permanent because it adds more convenience and access to consumers, while others want to go back to pre-pandemic regulations, saying if it wasn't a necessity before the pandemic, why should it continue? Aaron Zittner, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the fight to abandon regulations eased under COVID. Next, NFTs or non-fungible tokens are all the rage right now, as many are making money selling digital artwork and other digital items. But there is a growing climate controversy surrounding them. These NFTs are partially responsible for millions of tons of greenhouse gas emissions that is generated by the cryptocurrencies used to buy and sell them. One of the major players in this is the cryptocurrency Ethereum, which is built on a system that is incredibly energy hungry. Justine Kalma, science reporter at The Verge, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We like seeing our therapists online. We like getting our alcohol to go. We all have apps on our phone to allow us to do these things more easily. And the lawmakers have to decide which to keep and which to jettison. Joining us now is Aaron Zittner, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Hey, good to be with you. Throughout the pandemic, you know, in an effort to help people out with social distancing and then a lot of this had to do with businesses, so they wouldn't just crash out completely. There was a lot of regulations that were eased by state and local governments. One of the top things that we can think of are to-go cocktails. There was other things that helped uh, healthcare providers work across state lines. Medicare reimbursing for certain telehealth visits. Marijuana sales were eased. You know, So all of these things were done in an effort to keep the economy going. And now that things are opening back up, a lot of these industries are pushing to make those things permanent leave those regulations relaxed and untouched now. But there's pros and cons to both sides. You know, there's industries saying we should go back to the normal way of things before the pandemic. So, Aaron, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing across the country. Hundreds and hundreds of regulations were temporarily eased because of the pandemic. I mean, things like some states allowed you to get married over Zoom, which hadn't been allowed before. <laughs> In Arizona, they allowed telemedicine for pets under eased rules, lifting some rules that it made it hard to get a veterinarian to uh, initiate contact with you as a new patient over Zoom. The federal government allowed food trucks for the first time to show up at highway rest areas. You know, when you stop at a rest area, they might have uh, vending machines or, you know, along here at the New Jersey Turnpike, you have whole service stations. But a lot of rest areas just have a restroom and a trash can and vending machines and food trucks were allowed in for the first time. But you're right. Some of the biggest changes had to do with big changes in healthcare. Doctors were allowed to operate across state lines, doctors, nurses, physical therapists, all kinds of licensed people were able to operate across state lines in states in which they were not licensed, in which they usually would have to get a license. A lot of changes in the scope of practice. People were allowed to take on medical tasks that previously they weren't allowed to, such as prescribing certain medications, and a lot of changes in restaurants and alcohol. And now consumers have gotten used to this. I mean, who doesn't like cocktails to go? In some states, if I ordered food, the same truck could not bring 
be a six-pack if that state allowed a six-pack to be delivered at all. And now we've gotten used to a lot of these changes. We like seeing our therapists online. We like getting our alcohol to go. We all have apps on our phone to allow us to do these things more easily. And the lawmakers have to decide which to keep and which to jettison. And when you change the rules, there are winners and losers. Some people are going to make more money. Some people are going to lose. Let's uh, break some of these down individually. Let's start with to-go cocktails just because that's a little fun. A lot of restaurants were recognizing that people wanted complete meals, their meals plus their alcoholic beverages. And beyond that, bars that didn't serve food, they needed to stay afloat also. And the to-go cocktail program was a lifeline for a lot of them. But there's a lot of backlash to that as well, saying a lot of liquor stores and convenience stores saying, we can't have this going. They took a hit in sales because of those easing of regulations. So how does that one look? That's right. And our story in the Wall Street Journal starts with cocktails to go because it's just such a consumer-friendly change. Alcohol regulation is so heavy and balkanized. There are different rules for spirits, for wine and for beer. There are different rules for producers and distillers. And then you have distributors and then you have wholesalers and retailers. And these rules, you know, a lot of them date to the Prohibition era. And really, it had not been common until the pandemic for a restaurant to be able to sell you a uh, sealed margarita with your burger and fries if you were getting home delivery. And most states loosened up and said, you know, restaurants need a new revenue source. Let's let them sell cocktails. And a lot of them also said that liquor stores could also sell sealed alcohol. You could call up a liquor store and get a delivery more easily. But whenever you change something like this in such a highly regulated area, someone's going to win and someone's going to lose. So the cocktails to go is a threat to the local package store or convenience store or liquor store. Someone who stopped for a six pack at a convenience store attached to a gas station on their way home now has the option of phoning into a restaurant to get alcohol delivered to the home. So the trade groups that represent convenience stores and in some cases wholesalers in some states are trying to fight efforts to make cocktails to go permanent. And consumers are out there saying, wait a minute, there are apps like Drizzly and we all have Grubhub and Uber Eats. It's so convenient. It's on my phone. How can you really not allow me to get the product that I want delivered? If it was okay during the pandemic, why is it not okay now? As you mentioned, the health industry, lots of changes there. Let's start with telehealth. You mentioned the article, some 24.5 million Medicare beneficiaries use telehealth between mid-March and mid-October. That's a lot of people. And, and when people didn't want to leave their house, couldn't leave their house, telemedicine was such a huge benefit to those people that needed those services. So what was changed for telehealth? And obviously, again, what's the counter argument to it? There are a lot of changes in healthcare. some like Medicare on the federal level and some on the state level. And you're going to see a lot of fights state by state over some of these health rules. So Medicare, this was a shock to me as a reporter. Until the pandemic, Medicare was very restricted in what it would pay for when it came to telehealth. You had to live in a certain rural geography. And in most cases, you couldn't access telehealth. You couldn't see a doctor through video conferencing from your home. You had to leave your house and go to an approved point of contact and then log in through a video conferencing app to see a healthcare provider. The number of people using telehealth in Medicare was in the thousands before the pandemic. Congress said to the Medicare agency, look, 
change this, be less restrictive. And Medicare during the pandemic opened the doors and said, no matter where you live, we will pay for telehealth services. You can access them from your home and we will expand the number of services that we cover through telehealth. We'll also allow you to access a lot of them by phone, plain old telephone, as well as by video conferencing. And that just exploded. I mean, millions and millions of people now get healthcare services paid for by Medicare that they get through telehealth. This is something that is going to be made more permanent. There's just no way to put the toothpaste back in the tube and the genie back in the bottle. The question is going to be how liberal do the rules get because this could get expensive. If a visit with a doctor by video replaces a visit that was going to happen anyway in person, it might be a cost savings. Maybe doctors don't need to have as many waiting rooms and there's less travel cost. But if this change means that I'm going to go see the doctor more often and the doctor is going to bill more often for it, it could add a lot of costs to Medicare. And that's what the Congressional Budget Office, which is the scorekeeper of these things, has said in the past. It has said this is a net add to costs because there'll be more services rendered. And so the issue is going to be cost there. Nurse practitioners got an increase in uh, uh, what they could do, patients they could see, and then even prescribing medications. They could do this without uh, physician supervisions. Now, this one that seems to be on both sides of it, uh, you know, the nurse practitioners saying, hey, we're providing more services to help more people. On the other side, they're saying that you're taking away work from the physicians and the people that study to be there. So that could be another one that faces some opposition too. Yeah, there are a lot of things regarding what they call scope of practice. Can your pharmacist give you a COVID injection, a COVID vaccine, that kind of thing? And some of the ones we looked at had to do with nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And there were a couple of wrinkles here. Nurse practitioners in a lot of states are required to have these deals with MDs. And the physician is supposed to kind of look over the shoulder of the nurse practitioner. And nurse practitioners in some places can provide a lot of different health services. But a lot of states have said, we want you to have a deal where an MD is always signing off on your records and looking over your shoulder. And during the coronavirus pandemic, some states had already been lifting those rules, but some states Additional states lifted those rules because it can be hard as a nurse practitioner to get a doctor to form an agreement with you. And if they do, you have to spend money. You have to pay the doctor. And in order to just get health care to be more available, especially in rural areas, some states suspended that rule. And some states also said previously we would allow nurse practitioners to prescribe certain medications, but we drew the line at what they call schedule two narcotics. A lot of these are painkillers you know, part of the opioid epidemic, and some of them are ADHD-related drugs like Adderall and Ritalin. We don't want nurse practitioners to be prescribing those, and certainly not without supervision. But during the pandemic, the rules were eased, and nurse practitioners were able to do more things with less supervision. And now the fight is over. Whether going back to the old rules will enhance patient safety, because people should be supervised in the medical field when they're dealing with dangerous drugs and dealing with the surgeries and procedures, or whether patients will be undermined if we go back to the old rules because healthcare will be less available. Aaron Zittner, reporter at the Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, hey, glad to be with you. There is an indirect 
process where if there's lots of people using the system, it becomes more profitable for Ethereum miners to add more capacity, add more specialized computers. Those will use more electricity and in that indirect yeah. pathway, increase the emissions. Joining us now is Justine Kalma, science reporter at The Verge. Thanks for joining us, Justine. Thanks so much, Oscar. I'm happy to be here. NFTs and digital art right now is all the rage. We just had a few stories this past couple of weeks about it. One of the main stories we heard that a purely digital piece of art made by artist Beeple sold for $69 million at the auction house Christie's. So everybody's really into it and wants to know what these NFTs are, non-fungible tokens. Like I said, there's just been a lot of discussion about it. But now there's also a little bit of a climate controversy swirling around this. Basically, the energy and the power that it takes to run all this stuff, the platforms that they use, cryptocurrencies, you know, it takes a lot of energy to do all this stuff. And they're trying to figure out how much greenhouse gases are tied to this whole kind of economy of this stuff. So, Justine, tell us a little bit more about this. This controversy over how NFTs contribute to climate change is really <laughs> causing a rift between artists and, and folks who are interested in NFTs. Some art platforms have moved away from joining the NFT kind of craze because there are concerns about how bad this could be for the environment. Figuring that out is kind of, of complex because this is a new sort of trend and there's not exactly peer-reviewed research out there, but there have been some efforts to figure out how culpable NFTs are for the greenhouse gases associated with cryptocurrencies that are used to buy and sell them. And the main cryptocurrency that's used, Ethereum, does have a pretty big greenhouse gas footprint. You're looking at a cryptocurrency that uses about the same electricity in a year as the entire country of, of Libya from you know the most recent estimates. We'd been hearing about Bitcoin for a long time, and they go kind of through this process as well. But I know Ethereum is a big player in this right now, too. But I mean, basically, you got to set up computer systems to work out these very complex puzzles. As a reward for getting that, you get either whatever it is, the Bitcoin, some type of transaction there, and then that goes into your wallet. But all that electricity and all that energy that it takes to run those little computer systems, that's really what the problem is here. And it's important to note that not all cryptocurrencies are the same and not all blockchain technology is the same. What we're worried about is not necessarily the blockchain itself, but a mechanism that Ethereum um, and Bitcoin use to keep the ledger of transactions secure. It's, it's a model called proof of work, which sort of acts like a security system for the cryptocurrency because, you know, this is a, a decentralized system. There's no third party like a bank that oversees transactions. And so the blockchain is basically a decentralized ledger that you have to keep secure. Under a proof of work model, the way that you keep that secure is by forcing what you would call Bitcoin miners or, or Ethereum miners. You basically, essentially to, to mine new cryptocurrency, you have to verify transactions. And in order to verify transactions under a proof of work model, you have to use huge amounts of electricity to crack really difficult puzzles. You can't just solve these puzzles on your own. You have to purchase these energy guzzling machines to solve them. And those machines are what drives all of these emissions, at least for cryptocurrencies like Ethereum and Bitcoin that rely on proof of work. Yeah. And because that's the currency you deal in when you're buying these NFTs and digital artworks 
that's how they're all connected there. And, and, you know, just another example of how much energy it can use up. There's an NFT called Space Cat, which is basically a GIF of a cat in a rocket heading to the moon. They said the carbon footprint for that is equivalent to a resident from the European Union, their electricity usage for two months. And so this is just a GIF hanging out on the internet. And, you know, it's basically using that much energy there. So what's the next step? Because I know artists are having a problem with this too. As you mentioned, some uh, digital marketplaces that were going to get into this game didn't get into it after all because of the pushback and saying that a lot of this is uh, environmentally unethical. So what's the next step for all of this? So Space Cat's uh, carbon footprint, that was about two months of electricity use for an EU resident. That was according to just one analysis that hasn't been peer-reviewed. And I think that that analysis of about 18,000 NFTs found that the average carbon footprint for just one is equivalent to about the electricity use for a single person in, in, in the EU. Now, it's also a little tricky to attribute all of those emissions to SpaceCat. So you can think of it as sort of like figuring out SpaceCat's carbon footprint if SpaceCat were to get on a plane <laughs> instead of say a rocket ship like it is in the in, in the GIF. But it's kind of like if I were to buy a plane ticket and take that plane ride, I'm obviously responsible for a portion of the plane's carbon emissions. However, if I didn't buy that ticket or if I missed that flight, that plane would probably still have taken off with other passengers and um, you know still emitted the same amount of greenhouse gases. So you can kind of look at Ethereum in, in a similar way. There are many transactions going on on Ethereum that are not NFTs. And uh, again, the, the energy usage comes from mining new coins or, or tokens, not necessarily from the transactions. And so it's hard to say that SpaceCat alone was the one who generated all of those greenhouse gas emissions, but it's contributing to this machine, which is the cryptocurrency Ethereum that's pumping out all those greenhouse gases. And so now, because it's sort of joined that machine, it's holding some responsibility. But there are concerns that uh, the overall amount of greenhouse gases from Ethereum could rise because of NFTs becoming so popular and then more miners joining the game or adding more machines to solve those puzzles that leads to more emissions. So when it comes to sort of what is the next step or, or what are solutions, uh, there are quite a few that are being proposed. All of them have kind of been tested out, but you know, not to a scale we're sure that any of these are going to be a, a silver bullet. One of the most talked about solutions is to move away from that proof of work concept and so to, to, to no longer require those energy guzzling machines to solve complex puzzles in order to keep the blockchain secure. That's a move to a model called proof of stake. Proof of stake basically just gets rid of those puzzles. And the way you keep proof of stake model secure is that people basically have to stake some of their own cryptocurrency. And so if they're caught doing anything fishy, if they've verified transactions that should not have been verified, then they'll lose some of their cryptocurrency. Justine Kalma, science reporter at The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.